Hi there, everybody. This is John Allen, the editor of Crux. Welcome to Last Week in the Church. Except that, of course, it's actually the last two weeks in this case because we have been off air for the holiday fortnight, and a lot has happened in the meantime. Today, we have for you the Pope's bad back, uh, the, uh, the Vatican's ongoing money problems, a strange resignation in Belarus, and the Pope's private life. But look, I cover the Vatican, not the White House, but nevertheless, I am an American. I cannot simply ignore the surreal scenes we watched unfold at the nation's capital this week. So I'm also going to wrap things up on this show with my closing, highly personal, Jeremiah. All that and more is waiting for you on the other side, so stick around. All right, we begin with the Pope's bad back. As you doubtless have heard by now, uh, Pope Francis was scheduled to celebrate a Vesper service on New Year's Eve in St. Peter's Basilica, uh, although of a much smaller scale due to COVID-19-related restrictions. Uh, but nevertheless, he was going to preside, and it was going to feature, as always, the singing of that celebrated hymn of Thanksgiving, the Te Deum. The next morning, he was scheduled to celebrate the traditional New Year's Day Mass, because that is the Catholic feast of Mary, the Mother of God. But about midday uh, on New Year's, the Vatican announced the Pope would not be doing either one of those two things due to what they described as a painful bout of sciatica. Instead, he delegated those responsibilities uh, to Italian Cardinal Giovanni Battista Rey, who handled the Vesper service, uh, and Italian Cardinal Pietro Parolin, the Vatican Secretary of State, who led uh, the, the New Year's morning mass. Uh, I have to say, by the way, that the Vatican's timing uh, stunk uh, for me personally. Uh, because uh, we had assumed uh, in our household that if there was any Pope news on New Year's Eve, it was going to be in the evening with the Te Deum, and therefore we felt we could plan our midday feast. I was in the middle of cooking what I have to tell you turned out to be a fantastic honey-glazed pork roast, uh, but all that got interrupted uh, because we had to scramble to catch up with the news of the great pullout uh, of New Year's 2020 and 2021. Uh, now, okay, so Pope Francis punted on these two events. Uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, how big a deal is this? Uh, I would tell you substantively it's about a 2. Symbolically, it's maybe a 4. Uh, the substantive dimension is this. Look, uh, we've known the Pope has had sciatica all along. He told us that in a news conference in 2013. Uh, we know that sciatica is a nerve condition. It affects the back and sometimes the upper legs. And that while painful, it does not impair Pope Francis's judgment. It does not threaten his underlying health, certainly not life-threatening. Uh, and it doesn't limit his ability to do his job. Uh, he has lived with it up to this point and shows every indication of continuing to do so. He was there on New Year's Day for his traditional Sunday noontime Angelus address. He delivered the Angelus address last Sunday. Didn't look any worse for the wear and tear. The substantive four, or the, rather the symbolic four, uh, is simply this. Uh, this situation is a reminder that Pope Francis did just turn 84 uh, on December 17th and may be creeping up uh, on that period in everyone's life where you enter a period of decline, however rapid or long-term and slow that may be. Uh, he may be increasingly limited in his ability to do some of the public things that we are accustomed to seeing popes do. 
Uh, it has happened before. It will happen again. Uh, and there is nothing particularly remarkable except that we all need to be intellectually, emotionally, spiritually prepared for that to happen. All right. Second uh, of our storylines, the Vatican's ongoing financial problems. Uh, three things of note have happened in recent days. One, uh, as of New Year's Day, January 1st, a new law decreed by Pope Francis took force, uh, which basically means that all of the money in the hands of the Secretariat of State, that is traditionally the 800-pound gorilla uh, of the Vatican scene, kind of the uber department, the, the big kid on the block that tells everybody else what to do, uh, all of that money had to be transferred or it had to begin to be transferred. It has to be completed by the 4th of February to the administration of the patrimony of the Apostolic See or APSA, basically the Vatican Central Bank, uh, which is now under the direction of a key Pope Francis ally, Italian Bishop Nuncio Galantino. Uh, and those funds that belong to the Secretary of State, uh, they will be administered by APSA. Their use will be supervised by the Secretariat for the Economy uh, under uh, Jesuit Father Juan Guerrero, uh, another close Pope Francis ally. Uh, basically, this is, if you like, a kind of clipping of the wings of the Secretary of State as part of the fallout from the massive financial scandal, the London scandal that erupted last year. Uh, involving what at the end was about a $400 million real estate deal in London where the Secretary of State wanted to buy a former Harrods warehouse that was slated at the beginning for conversion into luxury apartments. Uh, the theory was that the income from those apartments would offset the investment over time. Uh, in order to finance that investment, they in part used money from Peter's Pence, which of course is the annual collection uh, where rank and file Catholics all around the world are asked to support, well usually it's marketed as supporting papal charities, to be honest. Hard to know how buying a swanky piece of property in the posh neighborhood of, of Chelsea counts as charity, although technically the statutes from Peter's Pence say it is simply to support the activities of the Pope. Uh, in any event, that was part of the scandal. Uh, several Vatican personnel have lost jobs over this. Some are facing the prospect of criminal prosecutions. Uh, it remains to be seen whether simply moving that money from the Secretary of State to OPSA in and of itself uh, is going to insulate the Vatican against future scandal. But it is at least noteworthy that the Secretary of State has lost its power of the purse, which traditionally has been part of the dominance it has exercised on the Vatican scene. Uh, all right, secondly, uh, and also as part of that unfolding lo uh, London scandal, uh, there has been reporting of late that one of the Italian financiers who helped the Vatican broker that deal, a guy by the name of Gianluigi Norzi, who is now facing a criminal prosecution in the Vatican for allegedly trying to extort exorbitant fees for brokering that transaction, uh, we now know why he was so anxious to get so much money out of the Vatican, because it's been reported that at the time, one of Torzi's companies 
was facing a 25 million euro black hole due to an insurance fraud uh, in which it was involved. Uh, basically speaking, Tortsy had gotten into a partnership with an insurance company. He had promised to park 25 million euro uh, in an account as a kind of surety against their transactions. Never actually did that. Uh, and a new regime came in at the insurance company that was looking to, well, find out what happened to its money. Uh, and so Torzi went to his contacts in the Vatican, uh, an Italian layman by the name of Terabasi, uh, and said to him basically, look, uh, you need to do me a solid. You need to help me out here. Uh, and according to recordings of, uh, of their conversation that were later published in the Italian media, uh, Terabasi's response was, well, we can probably do something for you. But, you know, look, heads up. Uh, uh, Vatican finances may soon be centralized, including the finances of the Secretary of State. And if that happens, uh, you know, we may not be able to help you out anymore. Uh, and that, of course, is what actually now has happened uh, with those funds now all being centralized uh, in OPSA. Uh, it remains to be seen what is going to happen uh, with the prosecution of Torzi or the other Italian financier involved in all of this, uh, Raphael Mincione. Uh, but it, it is an object lesson that over the years, uh, so many of the Vatican's financial problems often have, have come from this kind of toxic intersection uh, of lay Italians or Italian monsignori who work inside the Vatican and Italian bankers and businessmen and financiers who work outside who kind of come together under the cover of darkness to sort of cook up uh, these sort of transactions. Um, and I think it is fascinating to look at what Francis's sort of antidote to that now is. At the beginning of his papacy, back in 2013, 2014, it seemed to be, well, if you have an Italian problem, you need to fix it with non-Italians. So he brought in Australian Cardinal George Pell uh, to run the Secretariat for the Economy. Uh, he brought in consultants such as McKinsey and Ernst and & Young and KPGM from New York and Bonn and all sorts of other places uh, to try to help the Vatican move forward. Uh, but of late, it seems Francis has changed course. He has decided, because, because you know, the, the fatal flaw in that strategy, of course, is that quite often these non-Italians with the very best of intentions come over here and get bamboozled. Uh, by this incredibly sort of intricate and sometimes incestuous uh, Italian network of relationships that can be impossible for outsiders to penetrate. So Francis has apparently decided that the right solution to an Italian problem is to find the right Italians to fix it. Uh, so the guy who now has control over the Vatican's power of the purse is an Italian, Bishop Nuncio Galantino. Many of the Pope's recent appointments for instance, uh, his new appointment to run the Vatican's financial watchdog uh, is an Italian. Uh, and it would seem, therefore, that, that Francis, having begun trying to fix this problem from the outside, uh, is now trying to resolve or maybe dissolve it from the inside. Uh, don't know how that's going to work out, but it's going to be fun to watch. Final uh, financial story. Uh, it raised not a few eyebrows not long ago when Australia's Financial Intelligence Unit issued a report about movements of capital into and outside of Australia over the last six years broken down by, which country, by the countries in which these funds originated. Uh, and that report claimed that over the past six years, 
the Vatican has moved 1.8 billion euro into Australia. 1.8 billion euro. Now, not only was that a puzzling sum on the face of it, uh, but many observers also linked it to the case of Cardinal George Pell, who of course faced uh, accusations of historical sexual abuse, was convicted uh, by a jury trial, that conviction was upheld on appeal, and then finally he was vindicated by Australia's High Court. Pell and many of his supporters believe that some of his enemies in the Vatican who weren't interested in the brand of reform he was trying to deliver uh, may have moved money into Australia to support uh, his prosecution. Now, the prosecutors have said they didn't get any money. The victim in the Pell case has said that he didn't get any payouts. Uh, so there is no evidence uh, of that. Uh, and the other reason that this $1.8 billion dollar figure seems so incredible, is that if you divide it by six, that's about $300 billion a year. Do you know what the Vatican's annual operating budget is? About 300 billion euro a year. I mean, in other words, they would have been moving their entire annual budget into Australia every year. Uh, so it just, on the face of it, doesn't seem particularly plausible. A, the, both the Australian Financial Unit, which is known as Austrac, uh, and the Vatican have announced that they are cooperating on an investigation to find out where those figures came from. Uh, we don't yet know, but one of two things here are true. This is either a fairly colossal error on the part of the Australian Financial Intelligence Authority, which might raise questions for them domestically, or it really is true that the Vatican moved 1.8 billion into Australia over the last six years, in which case uh, we are going to have a massive uh, sort of, you know, snipe hunt uh, on the Vatican front to figure out where that money came from uh, and what it was doing there. Uh, so the message there is stay tuned. Uh, all right, third story on the docket for this week. A very surprising and, frankly, has to be said, somewhat suspicious resignation in Belarus. Uh, the Archbishop of Mintz, Tadeus Kondrashevitz, the Vatican recently announced Pope Francis has accepted his resignation for, region, for reasons of age. Kondrashevitz did recently turn 75, which is the mandatory retirement age for Catholic bishops. Or that is to say, it's the age at which they are required to submit their resignation letters. Then it's up to the Pope how much longer they serve. Uh, and his, his replacement has been named. Now, why is this surprising and a little bit suspicious? Well. Uh, let's just briefly recap the Kondrashevitz saga. Uh, as you undoubtedly remember, uh, the regime of President uh, Alexander Lubyshenko in Belarus has been under fire of late uh, because they staged a re-election in December, which basically nobody believes was actually free and fair. Most observers believe that election was rigged. That triggered massive street protests and a violent government response, uh, which in turn has triggered international condemnation uh, and even the idea of prosecuting Lubyshenko and his cronies for human rights violations. At the time, Archbishop Kondrashevitz spoke up uh, opposed to the violence and in defense of democracy. That deeply irritated the Lubyshenko regime, so that when uh, Archbishop Kondrashevitz, before the holidays, 
went back, went to Poland. He made a trip to Poland to go to Czestochowa to take part in the annual celebrations around the Madonna of Czestochowa. Also wanted to visit some relatives in Poland. When he tried to come back to Belarus, the government of Lubyshenko blocked him from getting back in. Uh, and so he spent the next couple of months in exile. Then, over the holidays, we get a surprise announcement that Kondrashevitz has been allowed back into the country, and he was able to celebrate Christmas in Minsk with his people. And just a few days later, we get an announcement that the Pope has accepted his resignation. Now, look, I don't know what the inner TikTok here was, but I will tell you what the face value appearance here is. The face value appearance is the Vatican made a deal with the devil that they struck a deal that if Lubashenko would let Kondrashevitz back in the country, they would make sure that Kondrashevitz didn't bother him anymore by taking away his job and therefore his platform. Now, whether that is true or not, we don't yet know, but it certainly suggests that the Vatican might want to give us an explanation. And if you want to understand how remarkable this actually is, let me give you a thought exercise. Remember, uh, then Archbishop Wilton Gregory of Washington got into hot water with President Donald Trump over the summer, around the same time that Kondrashevitz got into trouble with Lubyshenko, a, for objecting to a photo op that President Trump made at a Catholic cultural center in D.C. Fast forward to when Archbishop Gregory came here to Rome uh, in November to receive his red hat as a cardinal. Suppose Trump had blocked him from coming back into the country. And suppose Gregory was forced to cool his jets in Rome for three months. Then suppose there was, a, there was a surprise announcement that Gregory can come back and he celebrates Christmas for his people in the cathedral in D.C. And then four days later, the Vatican announces he no longer has a job. What would all of us suspect? And that, more or less, is the Kondrashevitz scenario. Uh, and therefore, it will be very interesting to see when and if the Vatican chooses to engage it. All right, lastly, the Pope's private life. So uh, over the holidays, the Vatican rolled out its plan for COVID-19 vaccinations of its own personnel. Uh, in a statement from the Vatican's Health and Hygiene Service, uh, they said that they have acquired sufficient doses to vaccinate uh, all of their residents and personnel, that those vaccinations will begin in the second part of January, so should be in just a few days. They're going to take place in the Paul VI Audience Hall, which is the uh, the auditorium where Pope Francis in the bad weather months leads his general audiences on Wednesday and other public events. Uh, they're going to begin with the Vatican's healthcare workers and their security personnel, then other personnel who have the most contact with the public and also the elderly. And let's remember that is not an insignificant demographic at the Vatican because you have a lot of octa and nonagenarian, uh, you know, monsignori, prelates, cardinals uh, scuttling around the place. Uh, and eventually, uh, everyone is going to get it. Uh, this, of course, comes in the heels of the Vatican greenlighting the morality of getting the COVID-19 vaccine against objections for some, from some uh, in Catholic circles who were alarmed by the fact that at certain stages in testing and development, the vaccines utilize stem cell lines remotely derived from uh, aborted fetuses in the 1960s. The Vatican said in this case, that's not a good enough reason not to take the vaccine because the cooperation in abortion is terribly remote. Uh, now, the one question the Vatican has not answered, however, and sort of stubbornly refuses to answer, is are the popes 
going to be getting the vaccine. That is Pope Francis and Pope Benedict XVI. Uh, and this is because of the kind of just overweening tradition at the Vatican that when it comes to the Pope's health, that's a matter of his private life, and they basically don't owe us an answer. Now, uh, juxtapose that with the fact that at the same time, the Vatican was refusing to answer the, in, in, in I think the view of most people, terribly legitimate question of whether the head of the global Catholic Church would be vaccinated against the most deadly pandemic of our time. Uh, it was also cooperating with the Italian television network Rai Tre uh, in the release of a new Pope documentary featuring previously unseen imagery of Pope Francis during the, Ju the, the Jubilee of Mercy in 2015, during which, uh, once a month on Fridays, he would make these visits, uh, these private visits, to people's homes, to drug and alcohol recovery centers, to refugee and migrant centers, to prisons, uh, in order to sort of put the corporal works of mercy into action. Now, at the time, the Vatican told us that these visits were, were completely private. There would be no press coverage, there would be no pool photos, nothing, uh, because this was part of the Pope's private attempt to practice what he preaches. Well, it turns out that a camera crew from Vatican TV was following Pope Francis the entire time, uh, and now uh, the footage uh, that they recorded uh, has been turned into a very slickly produced, glossy, new, hour-long documentary uh, that debuted on Italian television last weekend. Uh, has a voiceover from one of the country's most famous actresses, and it's just, it's, it's a compelling piece of theater. But why do, I, why do I say we should juxtapose these two things? Well, I mean, I would suggest that the Vatican can be a little selective uh, about how rigorously it polices papal privacy. Uh, I think when, when it suits the Vatican PR purposes, uh, it is quite happy to lift a veil on papal privacy. Um, when answers might beckon uncomfortable follow-up questions, uh, I think it is a bit less eager to do so. Uh, we are all certainly assuming that Pope Francis and, for that matter, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI will get this vaccine. Uh, it's just going to be fascinating to see if the Vatican ever actually tells us when that happens or if we have to wait for the next papal phone call, letter, or impromptu interview to get the skinny. All right, finally this week, I want to end with a note about those scenes that we witnessed uh, at the U.S. Capitol building on Wednesday. Uh, this has rightly been described as more than violent protest. It's rightly been described as an unruly mob engaged in nothing short of insurrection and domestic terrorism. Uh, those images have shocked and appalled the entire world, and rightly so. However, we as Americans have an unfortunate habit whenever sh something shocking and bad happens, which is, rather than getting to the core of it, we immediately want to begin a little exercise that I like to call the blame game. We want to know who's responsible for this, and the a priori axiomatic answer is, whoever it is, it's not me. So, uh, people are asking, uh, are the Capitol Police to blame for being unprepared for a foreseeable threat like this? Uh, is it perhaps 
all those Republican senators and members of Congress who fed this apparently baseless notion uh, that the election had been stolen, thereby stoking the anger of that mob. And of course, the number one candidate for blame uh, is President Donald Trump himself, who uh, on the 6th of January essentially invited this crowd to storm the Capitol. And later in his first blush reaction, in effect, praised them for doing so. Now, look, uh, the, the autopsy on all of this will certainly find plenty of blame to go around in all those players and probably many others. Uh, and it is easy, of course, to focus all the outrage on Trump because he is a star attraction. But folks, I promise you, this is a classic case in which the fault is not exclusively in our stars, but in ourselves. All of us, as Americans, have participated for decades in the growing polarization of our culture, in the accelerated coarsening of our language, and the out-of-control tendency to demonize those with whom we disagree. And if we want healing to happen, I promise you, seeing Donald Trump or Josh Hawley or whoever else may be your favorite villain in the dock is not going to accomplish it. If healing is to happen, it must begin with ourselves. We must all resolve to be different and to be better. I make this pledge for myself and on behalf of our team at Crux, we are going to endeavor to be that different and better version of ourselves every day because I cannot control what happens in Washington, but I can control what happens in my own mind and heart. And that, I suspect, is the path to recovery. That is our show for this week. Thank you for joining us. We will be here next Friday. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed week, and we will talk to you again soon.